Welcome everyone to Coffee and an Interview. I'm Jacqueline Pena. We're here today with Brittany McIntaggart, who is going to talk to us as a trauma survivor turned author. And I keep struggling with the last name, so she might correct me now. And it's really exciting because she's actually in Ireland while I'm in Miami, Florida. So let me give a big welcome to Brittany. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I can't really say I'm too upset about you being in Florida. I'd love to be in Florida, but it's okay. I'm I'm precariously living through the screen in Florida. <laughs> well, welcome. No, yes, we have some great vibes here and, and we actually have quite a story to share today. But I know um, we're still in the pandemic and I'm kind of curious before we jump into this conversation about trauma, surviving trauma and empowering others. in this area of trauma. But um, with COVID, how are things over there in Ireland right now? Yeah, so um, at the start, everything was really wild. I don't think that the government really knew what to do with anything. So, you know, our first lockdown led into a second lockdown. And I can't even remember now if we went into a third lockdown. I think, I want to say that we did, but I'm not really sure. But um, things are finally quietened down now. You know, um, everything's starting to reopen. And you know, I'm fully vaccinated. Most people I know are fully vaccinated, thank God. And things are starting to like look up again. Do you know what I mean? You can see things come back to life, you know, whereas everything was closed, you know, you can you can book a day out to Dublin and you can do this and do that now. I know that this weekend um it officially marks the nightclubs and the bars like opening as normal. So um that'll be interesting to see how that goes. I do feel like for all the people that aren't vaccinated, they are kind of putting us in a position where we probably will wind up in another lockdown if COVID was to spread like that again. But look, it's like anything else. We, I think, have gotten over the worst of it, please God. And I think now we can just look forward to kind of like returning to normalcy. But the word was, the world was never really normal anyway. So I don't know, we're returning to what we do. However we define normal. Yeah, whatever we define normal as, because... You know, it's so strange. Like it's, it's, I haven't personally gone out with my partner for a meal yet still since I don't know how it was well before the pandemic started. I'm just like, Oh Jesus. Like, I, I can't wait. I don't know what I'll do when I go into a restaurant. I'll probably just lay on the floor. Just feed me. <laughs> so no, we're, we're returning to normal here. Thank God. Finally. Cause it's, it's, it's long past due, you know? So, um, I can only hope the rest of the world gets back on track as well, because it's, it's dragging now isn't it really like I don't think anybody really expected it to be where it is now but we're slowly getting there it's nice to hear um you know what's going on in other countries again because sometimes we're isolated and just what's happening in our own countries yeah and And how other countries are taking approaches to it and stuff as well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what they're doing differently or what Mm. they do the same. And and it's been an interesting time. This is going to lead right into our conversation for today because I feel that with the lockdown in 2020 and then all the transitions from there, we've we've kind of started seeing a lot of more um, issues, mental health issues at home, challenges with um, addictions, for example, whether we have them or or someone we know does. And we've just seen a lot of um, different things surface during the pandemic or new things um, kind of pop up in our lives. And a lot of us are dealing with traumatic experiences and in a lockdown and post a lockdown, 
it's been tricky to to navigate. So I guess let, let's talk about uh, your our conversation today because we were going to talk about trauma and yeah. specifically because you're a trauma survivor and your story is inspiring because after everything you went through, you have this great positive energy and you're empowering others now. And so I wanted to open it up for you to share a little bit about your story, where you came from, what led to the work that you're doing right now. Yeah, perfect. So um, I'm 30 years old now. And um, although I'm in Ireland at the minute, I'm, I'm not Irish. I am living here because my partner is Irish. I'm originally from New Jersey. So I'm I'm a few steps away from home at this point and I'm here 11 years, you know, um, my story is, it's a whirlwind really. I was born into dysfunction. I was born, um, into like a, it, it really was a broken home, although to somebody else's terms, maybe it wasn't as broken. Do you know what I mean? Um, my mother was an alcoholic. She was a, to a limit, a functioning alcoholic. My father wasn't around. Um, he was in and out of jail. He, he suffered with addiction to um, different drugs and alcohol. And I mean, he had a lot of demons himself. He was adopted. And I can't say for certain if the circumstances had been different that he would have been around because I'm not so sure. Maybe he just didn't feel like he was capable of being a parent. I'm, I'm not really sure because I know that and it's very hard to get a, a conversation out of my mother about my dad. She has said that one thing she remembers for certain is that he told her that she, he couldn't have kids. So I don't know if maybe he, that was just his plan. He never, he, he didn't maybe ever want kids, but, um, you know, brought, brought home, um, into a family of dysfunction. My mom lived with um, one of her brothers who was the only father figure and role model essentially that I ever knew. Um, I wanted for nothing. Um, you know, he clothed and fed us and put a roof over our head and he was very good, but there was a lack within the home of emotional support and stability because of my mom's alcoholism. My uncle worked my uncle worked full time. He worked all of the time, uh, night shifts, day shifts, you know, the whole lot just to put food on the table and, you know, um, they were living in the family home. So the family home was left to him when my Nana passed away. So I know my mom wasn't prepared to have a child. So when I kind of came along, I think it kind of threw a spanner in the works in the sense that I don't think she was ever prepared to fully be a parent, if that makes sense. Um, like I said, she was a functioning alcoholic and she did work. She worked from time to time. I can remember her working when I was quite young, but her alcoholism always kind of overcasted my life in a sense that it's her alcoholism, but it became my alcoholism by proxy because I had to deal with her choices, I guess you would say. Um, you know, people knew that I didn't have a dad around. People knew that my mom drank because what I didn't know as a child, I know now that there was occasions where sometimes she would show up to the school a little bit under the influence to collect me, which wow. was news to me. Do you know what I mean? I actually only learned that last year when I was um, putting my book to paper, you know, in the process. I, I only learned that because I was inquiring about how I fully wound up in foster care because I wound up in foster care at the age of seven. You know, I, I, I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of five and that 
while it was being taken care of, I think it kind of made things a little bit more difficult for me, you know, making friends, keeping friends, relationships. I don't know how my mom dealt with it. You know, um, you would imagine that she kind of maybe thought, you know, she needs to focus on me more than the alcoholism and stuff and kind of change things and, and, you know, want different because the thing with my mom is, and it's not that she's a terrible mother. It's that she suffers from an addiction. I don't want to play the blame game, but she had the same problem. Her father just up and left them one day. He left my Nana with six kids and that was just that. Do you know what I mean? And she knew to an extent what I was dealing with within myself, you know? So the alcoholism led to me being taken under foster care at the age of seven, which completely changed my life in the sense that I was taken away from everything that I thought I knew. And that was very traumatic at that age because I was getting answers from no one, but I knew kind of like deep within myself that the alcohol was the reason I was taken away. And that made me really mad because why am I paying for my mother's mistakes? You know, she did go away to rehab. You know, she was, she was uh, put into a court ordered rehab for so long, but I was the one taken out of the home. I was shifted from home to home. I think I went between um, I have the number right in my book, but I think I was shifted between like say six homes in the matter of like four weeks before I got to the wow. actual foster home that I stayed in for seven months. Then, you know, it was, it was one home because nobody could handle me. And that was the reality of it because my ADHD was so severe and my, and because of the whole situation as a whole was affecting me so badly. I wasn't eating properly. I wasn't, you know, I was, I was being a little bold and stuff like that. And I can remember, like, I know that my, my godmother had me for a time and she said, like, you were a lot to handle at that age, you know? So being that age of being taken away, not understanding what's going on, you know, I, it just kind of, it led to other things. And that was only up until the age of seven, you know, um, when I got a little bit older, other things happened as a result of, I think because my mind was kind of altered at that young age being taken away from my mother, you know? So I had a lot of trauma before I was even the age of 10. Do you know what I mean? And it's, how do you deal with that? You know what I mean? How do you like process that? How do you? Yeah, that, that's, that's the question. Cause you were so young and, yeah. um, you know, you and I have something in common, except it, not the same experience at all. And, and and the outcomes are so different, but we both grew up in a home with an alcoholic period and trying not really having words for that or how to process that and yeah. living in that because you were so, we were so young, but then there was all this additional trauma added to that because of the foster care situation and you had ADHD, which made the foster system situation much more complicated yeah. for you. Um, and, and so going through all this before, by, by the age of seven, like, like you said, before you were even 10, I think for children, it's hard to process that trauma if we don't have a way to someone who can get, navigate the conversation at that age, but also as we get older, um, I could, I could just see how complicated all of that was with Absolutely. you growing up. And it's interesting. Yeah. And the cycle of alcoholism, like her father was an alcoholic and yeah. she was an alcoholic. I think that's another interesting piece that we don't realize how easy it is to repeat that cycle of alcoholism cycle. or addiction. That's mm-hmm. absolutely right. And I think it's so underestimated, um, because it's, it really is, it's a cycle and it's a cycle that unless you stop it yourself, it's going to continue to go on because for me, when I got into my teenage years, obviously, you know, as we get into things um, a little further, I wound up taking too much of a liking to alcohol myself. And that was my way of coping 
So again, here was the cycle. Do you know what I mean? So you can't, I'm not knocking anybody with an addiction because I cannot imagine how difficult it is. But I, I, I know firsthand, especially with the generational curse, because that's what it is. You know, I was born into this generational issue and I didn't, nobody asks to be born, but like, I think I get so mad at my mom sometimes because I'm like, why was I not enough to change? I was her only child. Do you know what I mean? I still am her only child. You know what I mean? Like, why was I not enough to change? Why, why? And, and even I've had arguments with my mother, even now as an adult. And I'm like, why was that? Why am I still not enough to change? You know, but I've kind of come to the sense now where I understand that that addiction was a part of her life since the time she was 16. She had a, a love and a love hate relationship with that addiction before she even knew who I'd be. Do you know what I mean? So I was lying to myself and joking myself. if I thought that I could change that because I couldn't because you cannot help somebody that doesn't want to be helped. I think you just made an excellent point too. Um, when, when working with individuals with addiction, who we love, we take on so much of ourselves and we don't realize it's not our responsibility and we can't change it. We can't, we can't, uh, we can't cure addictions are really cure. You know, you sort of manage and do the best you can, but there's not much we could do. It's, it's that person that has to do it. Absolutely. And I think that that's the hard part for the loved one. Mm-hmm. It is. It definitely is. And, yeah. And, and so it's interesting because that is only the beginning uh, a story. The story. There's more yeah. <laughs> that um, you've overcome and yeah. and have you've used to. You know, it's traumatic. You went through a very yeah. difficult time, and now you're using that to that experience to empower others. But tell us a little bit more about what happened once you were in the foster care system. You had a couple of other traumatic experiences along the way. Yeah. So I wasn't. I was in the foster care system. Um, legally until I was 18, but I was, I was take, I was released back home after seven months, but, um, you know, my mom did eventually return to drinking and, you know, my home life and everything took a toll on me. Um, I experienced mental health issues in the, in the home, um, that I lived in. My uncle did try and take his own life at one point. I can remember all of these things and I can remember experiencing so much as a young child. I can remember, um, you know, and I recount this in my book, one of our neighbors, her son had actually committed suicide. And I can remember us being a part of the afters of that, of, um, it, although it wasn't in the house that was in our block, but being around and hearing the conversation of what had happened and how he had done it and, and everything. And I can, I just know that I was exposed to way too much at a young age. And I think that's why it's so important for parents to I I mean, look, don't shield your child from everything because at the end of the day, you need them to learn certain lessons. But you have to shield them from things that could possibly have a profound effect on them. Do you know what I mean? So I grew up too quickly and I know that now, you know, I grew up, I grew up way too quickly before my years. And this was because of a result of what was going on in the home and things that I was seeing. And I just wanted to be independent. And I never wanted to depend on anybody because there was no stability. There was no emotional support. Um, you know, I was outgoing and I was friendly, but I really lacked somebody to like trust and kind of talk to I guess you could say and that at that age is so important because you need to feel like you have like confidant and somebody you can open up to and who's going to believe what you say 
Do you know what I mean? It isn't going to make a joke out of everything that you're saying. Uh, so growing up too quickly, I guess you would say, you know, um, when, when I went into middle school, I found, I wound up falling in love with a boy that I was head over heels in love with. And that kind of took me down a different route because I became sexually active at a young age. I was, I, I lost my virginity when I was 13. And for me to say that now, I'm like, what was I thinking? Because that's not okay. But again, there was no conversation in my home. Do you know what I mean? And there was nobody that I could go to and be like, I did this the other day and I'm not so sure that I should have done it. Do you know what I mean? And uh, it just, I think it tainted my young mind of what love was because I began to associate love with needing to please somebody or making somebody else happy. Do you know what I mean? So I was three weeks before I was 14, I wound up being sexually assaulted. And this was something that profoundly changed my, the entire course of my teenage years. Um, you know, people say you can't let one event alter your whole entire life. But in my case, because this happened to me at such a young age, and I know that it happens to children younger, and that's why I know for a fact that it has a profound effect on them and their mind and their mental well-being and their relationships in years to come. You don't have to let it alter the rest of your life, but it is definitely going to affect a lot of situations that you're a part of. So in my case, it was actually a friend that you would say near enough set the whole thing up. You know, she knew what happened. She knew the she knew the boys. She um it was her boyfriend's friends. They were older. I never got my date in court. You know, this ha happened out in public. Um and I somehow managed to escape the attack. And I then ran home and bottled it up for five days. So I spoke nothing of it. I, I, I didn't, whatever evidence there would have been, I destroyed it, not realizing what that would do. I didn't speak up for five days. And when I did finally crack, because I had it in my head and so many people that have been or experienced this will have that nobody's going to believe me. And the other person is always going to turn it around on me. And in this case, this girl that I was friends with, we were friends since we were kids. Our parents were friends when they were kids. But her mom was one type of parent and my mom was another. My mom knew that they were trouble, but she was really the only person that really bothered with me. Do you know what I mean? So I considered her a friend. And in my case, it was a he said, she said thing. It was all turned around on me. She refused to give the names of the men that were involved. I never got my day in court. I never, I know one of their nicknames. Do you know what I mean? They were literally, I'm from a town called Fairlawn. And they were from a town called Patterson, which is literally 10 minutes away. It's it's one straight road. Do you know what I mean? And it's, I, I, I can say with no, with no doubt in my mind, it would not have been hard to find them. But there was never, I never got any justice for what was done to me. And I was 13 years old. I was literally three weeks away from turning 14. So my whole life changed. Do you know what I mean? I, I went from this innocent, young, pretty girl to... I literally hated myself. Yeah. And I then had to 
become like a shell of who I was because I had to now reflect and defend myself against what they were saying. Do you know what I mean? And this led to me being in two abusive relationships. It, it led to me having trust issues. It led to me not fully understanding what red flags were and how to decipher them and escape from them when they're right in front of you. You know, so I experienced that. I, I, and I know I shouldn't say, well, that one particular incident did kind of create a snowball effect, but it did. Because until I realized and pulled away and changed my life, when I moved over to Ireland, I know for a fact, and I can say hand on heart, I would not be sitting here today if I didn't change my life when I did. I would be, I would 100% be six feet under. And I know that that was a snowball effect from that night in May of 2005 when I was raped. You know, so it just goes to show you what trauma can do to you if, if it's not dealt with or if you just kind of like bottle it up. Yeah, I, 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 in case we had some internet issues, but also because I want to highlight some of the important things you said, I mean, you had this traumatic experience right before turning 14. Um, I'm going to go back a little further. Um, you lost your virginity at 13. And I know a lot of people who were sexually active at the age of 13 and we don't have these conversations at home or we might not have anyone to have them with. And I think it's important to build these safe spaces where we can have these conversations so that young girls and boys know that this is not okay. And a lot of times it's 13 year olds with slightly older boys, at least in what I've seen growing up with yeah. 18 year olds or 16 year olds or 21 year olds. And that that's not okay. No. We need to protect our young girls and our, and teach our young boys and, and protect our young boys too, who could, um, uh, you know, succumb to something like this and become Absolutely. sexually active at a young age. So I, I thought that was a, a very powerful story, but then you had the sexual assault. Yeah. And, um, and when it happened, you, you bottled it up and you didn't say anything for five days and you didn't get your justice. You didn't get your day in court. You didn't have that, uh, opportunity to be able to have that kind of relief. It's not a real relief, but you know, there's so many different things you yeah. have to do. You didn't get that piece. No, that I didn't justice. get the justice of it. Yeah, absolutely not. And especially, and I can't, I, you know, it's, I wonder often if I would have ever even said anything because I had wound up only ever saying it because I was in class and I was at my lowest of lows because anybody that knew me back then, I was outgoing, I was bubbly, I was chatty. And the five days following the um, assault, I was very withdrawn. I wasn't myself. I was quiet. I just, there was no laughing, you know, I can remember writing a note to a girl in school. She asked me if I was okay. Cause one of the girls that I did talk to, she was like, you haven't been yourself. Are you okay? Mm -hmm. And I had said to her, I wrote the note back and like, and these are, I know school is still the same, but this is like, you're trying to pass the notes and not get caught. Like, um, I was like, no. And without really understanding what the words that I was about to write were, I wrote, I want to kill myself because I had felt, even though I like, I knew what suicide was and stuff like that, but I didn't really understand the volume of what that meant. Mm. And somehow or another, that got back to the teacher. The teacher got the guidance counselor and it was reported to the police. But with saying that, that was that was as far as it went. I got a little bit of counseling afterwards, but that was it. 
what was reported the uh, the assault or the yeah. suicide uh, the assault yeah both so what had happened was the girl that i wrote the note to reported that to the teacher who mm-hmm. reported back to the guidance counselor who took me into her office and asked me why did i make this admission about wanting to commit suicide and it literally it was like word bomb and i couldn't stop it all come out do you know what mm-hmm. i mean and and it's like a blackout moment now because I can remember, you know, the police coming in. I can remember my mom running down the hallway in the school and I can remember hearing the bell go off at 251 thinking I need to get upstairs because I need to tell the boy that I was in love with. I need to tell him that I didn't do this, that that it's not my fault because I thought that if he heard it from somebody else, he was going to think, sure, you obviously want to do that. You know what I mean? So these are things that was going through my head. I wasn't concerned about myself. I was embarrassed and I shouldn't have been, you know what I mean? And I knew what my, what the girl, I knew what they, I knew what she was like and I wasn't wrong. She, you know, it, it was, it was my fault and that wasn't the case at all. Mm, that was a lot. So, so what happened afterwards? So now it's reported, nothing happened in terms of the, uh, the justice part on the sexual assault, but now people were aware it's no longer just inside of you. And so what happened afterwards? Was there an opportunity for healing or did it cause more distress? What happened when, when this came out? So the days and weeks that followed, um, what I tried to do was I shut off and I tried to act like everything was okay. I had to defend myself from the rumors that were flying around the school and I was already a victim of bullying. I mean, bullying followed me like a shadow. So this was just another thing on top of that um, that I had to deal with. Um, I had to deal with the girl that I was friends with, now ex-friends with, and the boyfriend of her and that would have been friends with those boys. I'm trying not to give away names, so I'm sorry if that's confusing, but um, they would walk past my house and shout things. And I wasn't Mm -hmm. allowed to, because the way our windows were, like my mom always kept, she had this big window in her room and she would always keep it open because it was the summer. And like, we would hear them walking past and laughing. And I wasn't allowed to go and retaliate and say what I wanted. My mom's like, just just keep your mouth shut because what's gonna happen is it's just gonna create a bigger problem, which she was right. I know a couple of times she did call the police station and then they just pretty much said like, just tell her to stay away from them. But hold on a minute, you're not gonna come and patrol. They're walking past my house. You know what I mean? Like. Why is it okay for me to be called a whore? Why is it okay for me to be called a liar? Why is it okay for that? But it's it's not okay what they're doing. It's 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 not actually okay what they're doing. They are in the wrong, not me. You know, so the weeks that followed us, there was counseling. I had to go for some really intense um like medical procedures. Like I can remember having to go and get like these cameras done and and stuff at all. I just it was like an invasion of privacy at that age. Do you know what I mean? You're having cameras put in places that you don't want them put and you're being asked questions that you really don't want to answer. And my mom had to sit in on all these appointments because obviously, do you know what I mean? I was underage and she had known and, you know, she, I was in therapy already at this point, but I was so embarrassed. I just, I didn't want to keep talking about it. Do you know what I mean? I was just like, I just want to pretend like it didn't happen. And then, you know, you go and you kind of, anybody who's been in this position, probably if you're like me, has gone through the whole victim shaming, you know? So it's like, you're, you're blaming yourself. Like, this is my 
fault. Why did I go out that night? Maybe, was it what I wore? Did I say something? Oh, did I flirt with them? I must have flirted with them. Do you know what I mean? You go through this whole thing of what could I have done differently? I never healed about my rape until, to be honest with you, 110%, probably until like between last year and this year, because mm-hmm. I just like never really talked about it. Do you know what I mean? And it was only really when I started writing my book, I kind of like, I'm at peace with it now, but I'm still really mad because did they go on to have families? Did they go on to do this to anybody else? Did they go, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know any of that. You know what I mean? And that, they didn't deserve any of that. They don't deserve to go and live normal lives. And if I had to bet, like, cause I know people will say abusers have been abused or will continue to abuse. I would put money on it that they, they would have done this before or after me. And it just makes me wonder, they really are justifying what they did to me because somehow it was okay. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And it's just, they're, they don't, they probably don't realize what their actions led me into afterwards. You know what I mean? So it was like, it was just a continuous thing. There was no healing. There was no, because I just went down a worse path, you know? Um, because again, there was no, I should have really been wrapped in bubble wrap, right? And taken care of at home and been like, no, like, this is what we're going to do for you. We're going to help you. But it wasn't that at all. I had an uncle that lived a couple of miles away. He lived out in like, as my mother would call them, baboonies, like, and they could have literally called him and been like, she needs to move away for a while. She needs, she needs out of here. Whether it be a year, six months, she needs out of here. Cause this is after happening, but no, that's not what happened. I had to like literally just continue life as normal. And like, why? Yeah. And, and it's a tough one because you were already a victim. Yeah. And then we, because you're a victim of such a horrendous crime, it's almost like you're forced to be a victim multiple times. You're a victim Absolutely. of bullying around it. You're, um, you know, when, when you finally have this reported and, you know, you're going through the process of reporting it officially and going through the, the, the rape exams. Yeah. It, it's almost like another violation. It's another it trauma, the way that process is set up. And um, and then having to live through all of that and stay in the same place. Uh, again, that the trauma of repeating it over and over again through people asking you questions, examining you, being bullied. And it's, it, I think we forget that when you go through something like that, you're not just a victim of that one act, which is yeah. a horrendous, life-changing event, but you are the victim of multiple subsequent events because of that event. And then on top of that, it just changes you psychologically, physically, emotionally. It's just a lot it goes is. on. And I don't think we, we don't always realize all those all those pieces and and um and and, and so you know it, you go through one multiple traumas from your childhood with the ADHD and the foster care system and then you go through another yeah. wave of traumas that's added on to the ones yeah. you haven't had a chance to resolve because you were so young yeah exactly and because there was no outlet for me to resolve as well do you know what I mean so it's just it's you have like this imagine like a ball of yarn but all those pieces of yarn are trauma. 
you know what I mean? You keep unraveling it until you get to the end and then what do you do with it? Do you know what I mean? So it's just like, well, and this is what I mean about being born into the generational curse and the family dysfunction, because it's like, was this, was this what I was born for? Because if this was what I was born for, can I get a one-way ticket back to my mother's womb? Because I didn't ask for this. Do you know what I mean? And it's just like, it took me so long to get my life to a place where I feel safe, you know? And it's, it's, it's not fair at all. It's not fair on anybody. You know what I mean? Like I hate sounding like the victim, but it is what it is. You know, I was, I was 19 years old when I finally got my bit of peace, but it, I, it didn't come easy. Within the last three years is when I really started to, you know, make sense of and get my peace. It didn't just end when I moved across the world. Mm-hmm. Because there was still so much there. So that's a good segue to, you keep talking about about a year ago is when you really could heal and move forward from the trauma, but you've been, you've been healing, but I mean like that turnaround, that massive turnaround point was last year, which is when you decided to write your book, it supports this idea I have about the power story, how it can help you heal and empower you in life. But you took a little bit further, you published your book to empower others. And so I would love to give you a chance to talk more about your book. Your book is Resilience, an autobiography. And it's it's a perfect title for everything we've talked about today. So tell us a little bit more about the book, that turning point, that book and the purpose behind writing this book. Yeah, so um, I kind of always knew from a young age, probably around, I mean, for sure, probably around the age of 13, that I definitely wanted to someday share my story. I always wanted to write a book because I always had a passion for writing and reading and stuff like that. So, I mean, we're talking before I went through any of the other trauma, you know, the abusive relationships and stuff. So I was like, yeah, when they want to write my book, but little did I realize I would have a foundation to actually write a book with years later, which I mean, it's a blessing in disguise, but you know. And so I had kept saying it and kept saying it and kept saying it. And I mean, I have a box that's sitting next to me here and it's full of old copies and, you know, um, bits and pieces and and segments of like me wanting to write the book, but not knowing what to call it. And it didn't make any sense. Like, and last year when the first pandemic came in, the first lockdown rather, sorry, um, you know, my job closed. I had all this time on my hands because originally we thought we were going to be back to work after four weeks. And like that didn't happen. I'm still not back to work. So um, I kind of started to think, I was like, hold on a minute. Like maybe maybe there's something I can do with this time. You know, I had a lot of time. There was a lot of stuff going on because my mother still drinks and did drink then, still drinks now. And if anything, she's worse. You know what I mean? So I was dealing with the drunken aspect of my mother's life and and everything that life throws at you in between. Because in between all this, you know, I I spoke about my dad earlier um, and I do go into it in my book. So I'll not give too much away. Um, So I met my dad. And my mom had gone behind my back and set this meet up with my father because I was curious about him at this point in 2006. So I had met him, but I was in a very bad place. I was in my first abusive relationship. And we had, me and my dad had wound up having a falling out because what he had tried to do was he, he tried to come in very 
very strong and he tried to be a father when he wasn't a father all along. And I didn't really take to that because I was, you know, this unruly teenager that was dealing with all this crap. Do you know what I mean? So we had had an argument and uh, I basically, I told my mom, I said, I left the house and I said, if you want me to come back home, he better be gone. And I regret that now because I can see where he was coming from. But in 2009, I had turned 18 and I was allowed to then legally look for him, you know. So I had known he moved out to California and he was married again for like, I don't know how many, what what time that was. But um, I had went looking for him, got his mother's phone number. And I can remember calling his mother because I couldn't get his number. And I can remember like a couple of days later getting the phone call. And I was standing in Subway and getting the phone call from his mother. And she was like, you left me a voicemail. You're looking for my dad, your dad. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And she's like, did you not get my letter? And I'm like, no, what, what letter? I was like, no, no, because I had moved out when I was 15. So any of my mail, anything like that, it usually did go to my mother's house. And I was like, no, no, what, what letter? She's like, yeah, your dad, um, your dad died. I was like, what? And like, I'm, I'm recounting this really like easily, but this is not the way it went down. Do you know what I mean? Like I lost my shit and, and God forgive me for the language, but I did. I, I lost it altogether. This was August of 2009. He had committed suicide in February of 2009. Oh, wow. Suicide. And nobody thought to reach out to me. So she claims whether it is true or not, I don't know because there, I've never seen a letter, but I do have my theories about it. And, you know, she says that she wrote to me in the letter, which to me is BS. You don't write a letter to somebody and tell them that their father's dead. You pick Mm -hmm. the phone up and call them and you keep calling until you get in touch with them. Had I not gone looking for my dad then, how many years would it have been before I- You wouldn't have known. Yeah, you wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known. So I was dealing with that, you know, so all of this stuff, I had a lot of stuff going on like mentally when I decided to write my book last year. And, um, I was, my mental health wasn't good. I, I was just, I was in a messy place, but for some bizarre reason, last year felt like the right time to start the book process. So I kind of took that as, right, now is the time to do this. You know, so I started looking at publishers and I kind of thought, right, maybe in some weird way, this is going to help me because I, I always loved, you know, advocating, telling my story and, and stuff like that. Like, I love that. I love telling people my story and reaching out to them. And like, I've had people say to me, it's selfish what I do. I've had people bully me and be like, you're only in this for yourself. And I'm like, no, no. Like, what, that's not what it is at all. Yeah. What, what makes it so selfish? What do they think you're yeah. getting out of this? And I, I, I mean, again, last year in the middle of this process, I actually dealt with very bad bullying online of girls being like, she only talks about herself and, you know, everything's about her and, and her story. She's not trying to help other people. And I'm like, you guys have me all confused. In order for me to change lives, I need to tell my story. Last time I checked. Maybe I'm wrong, though, because, you know, there's an awful lot of Karens in the world these days. So with that being said, I started the process of writing my book. I'd gotten in touch with my publisher. And I knew I wanted them the minute I'd talk to them. This was like, I think this was like the ending of April, 2019, no, 2020 and the beginning of of May. So I was speaking to them and I always like go, I always say to my partner, I'm like, do you think I'm doing this the right way? Blah, blah, blah. Cause like she, 
I can be very impulsive. So I was like, this is what I'm getting. Do you think this is a good idea? She said, yeah, but if you think you're going to be able to do this, because she was essentially watching me go through all the motions Mm. of all the mental health issues. And, you know, I think for her, she probably didn't want me to put myself in a position where I was going to do more harm to my mind than good, you know, that sort of a way. So I had signed my contract with them in May and I had started the process. Now I had the process started already, but it was more of a matter of finishing. I could never get past my story on paper past the age of 10 ever. So last summer I had to actually start dealing with this stuff. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And, and, and processing everything that had happened and, and feelings that I, I, I'd never dealt with. So it was actually incredible. Now, obviously, the bullying and stuff like that that had happened last summer, it, it put a halt on me. I stopped writing. And I had said to my, my wife, Onya, I said, I'm not doing this. I'm not putting my book out there. It's not happening. And, you know, she had kind of said, why are you doing this? And why are you paying this money? And why are you, why are you going to do that to let them annoy you? They don't know you. Do you know what I mean? Like, what if one person reads your story and, and it changes their entire life? You know, so I pick, I put the pen back to paper and it. what I realized is it really is insane, the healing that you will get from writing because my life has never been the same. You know, and I'm, I'm sitting here now because this time last year, I was not where I am now. You know what I mean? And it's crazy how much changes because I had to force myself to work through the process of dealing with the things that I hadn't dealt with before, you know, um, learning to forgive myself because I had held so much anger within myself and, you know, have these conversations if I was feeling a certain way or I had to ask questions I was afraid to ask to my family and stuff, you know, about things that I wasn't sure that I could remember and stuff. So without writing my book, I don't think I would have healed or found my resilience because what I've, what I've found in this whole process is, oh, we're gone again. (laughs) I know. Oh, give it a second and let's start with um okay. Can you hear me? Are you there? Yes. yes. <laughs> and you know, so like had I not started this process and forced myself to go through the whole writing thing and you know, um really getting the pen to paper and then forcing myself to deal with everything, I wouldn't have found my resilience because I've now realized that literally everything and and so much of it is crappy happened for a reason so it just goes to show you what power you can have in your story yes I mean there's so many things you said so I want to go to this idea of learning to forgive yourself Mm -hmm. and I think for a lot of us who are uh, victims of trauma of any kind whether we're raised in a home with an alcoholic or addictive parent, or we go through a sexual assault or any, anything that happens in life. A lot of times we have to go through that. We have to go through more trauma through the repetition from the conversations or the medical exams. And on top of all of that, we tend to blame ourselves for Mm -hmm. how we reacted or what happened or 
with uh with rape with sexual assault a lot of times we blame ourselves did I I shouldn't have been out there so late I shouldn't have yeah. dressed that way and so learning to forgive yourself one and learning to rewrite the stories that the, the narratives in our head the stories that are not true we we didn't go asking for it you know yeah. rewriting those stories and I I thought that was a great point and then it led into the writing conversation. Your partner was worried that writing was going to cause more uh, repetition of the trauma, yeah. more issues. And what happened instead was that the writing helped you heal and empowered yeah. you even more. And I think I, I agree with you. There is this power in your story and getting it out somehow. And for a lot of us, it's through writing. For others, it could be through art visual yeah. arts or something like that but the power of story is powerful in healing ourselves but um in doing a book that you actually put out for others yeah. you're trying to empower others you're trying to help others by talking about your story in hopes that yeah. you'll help them a little bit more as well do you want to talk about what what you feel this book means and, and how you see this book and the work that you're going to continue doing. Uh, so this this idea of healing ourselves and telling our story to help others and now how are we going to help others? Tell me a little yeah. bit more about that. Yeah. So like resilience for me is like essentially finding the strength that you do have in yourself to overcome the things that you've dealt with. You know, so for me, it was overcoming foster care. It was overcoming coming from an alcoholic home. Um, rape, two abusive relationships, and I losing my father to suicide, you know, everything in between, everything that happened throughout the years. But resilience for me was learning how to overcome all of that and to use what happened to me for the greater good, because I could have wallowed in self-pity and, and let it define me, but I haven't. Now, for a long time, I can't say that I didn't because I probably did, but I use it now as my strength instead of my weakness, because why should I have let these things go without speaking about them and staying silent about them? Why should I not? And this is the problem. There's why with victim shaming, it's so wrong because why should we not speak about these things? We're not victims. I'm not a victim. I'm a survivor. You're a survivor. Like if you have survived an attack or generational dysfunction, anything like that, you are a survivor of that and you need to use your voice and use the platform that you have. Do you know what I mean? So for me, that was what resilience was. You know, I've decided now that I'm an author. Do you know what I mean? I, I have my book out there. I, I advocate. I advocate for mental health. I advocate for domestic violence, for, you know, parents, um, children of parents with addictions, you know, everything. I just, I love connecting with people and to let them know that they're not alone because at the end of the day if I had of having somebody all these years ago to tell me look you're not alone and one day this is all going to make sense I would have been maybe like a little bit more understanding but it's actually weird because I was asked to write a victim not victim impact statement it was actually a letter to my abusers for another podcast and the way that they do their podcast and and he has I, I mean it's incredible I recommend it to anybody. He starts his podcast episodes with the person reading a letter to their abusers. If they're comfortable, not everybody's comfortable with doing it. But when he asked me to do this, it was the first time I had ever been asked to write to my abusers. So this blew me away. And for a minute, I was like, whoa. And then I was like, I have to do this. And I wrote a very powerful statement 
And I got everything off my chest. And what that did for me, and again, the power of healing, the power of writing. When I was done writing that letter, I actually made a really big discovery about the circle of karma and the circle of things that had happened. And I'm going to share this with you to see if you're like, like how weird is that? So my rape happened on the 6th of May, 2005, which was a Friday. So between that time and all these years, all this other stuff happened and life happens. My last abuser and who was my worst abuser. I mean, I was in the abusive relationship and um, all this stuff happened. That's a whole different, a whole different ship to sail. I don't even know what you'd say. I had fear of him for a long time. And in 2016, for the first time, it was like four years since me and Anya had gone back to New Jersey. We'd actually planned to go back to New Jersey in the August of that year. We had everything planned. But one thing that we were constantly concerned about was running into this one particular person because I would just drain. I would just go like Casper the Friendly Ghost. I really would because I knew that he couldn't hurt me, but that didn't mean that I wasn't afraid of him. You know what I mean? So you're considering all this stuff that happens in between these years. So on the sixth, and then now I'm one of these people that until I wake up the following morning, it's still the same day. So the sixth, the night of the sixth of May in 2016, which was a Friday, he was killed in a car accident because he drove drunk. Okay. Okay. Where he was killed was going through Patterson. On the way to? Yeah. And he was two minutes away from his house. And I find, and the bizarre thing is how I actually found out that he was killed was the girl that had the boyfriend whose friends raped me. She was the one that actually texted me and told me that he was killed. Nobody, like my phone went off a dozen times. The first text message I saw was her. Hmm. So you mean to tell, like I made this whole big self-discovery thing that the 6th of May, 2005 was when the snowball effect or the yarn started to unravel. And my circle of trauma ended and lifted off of my actual soul on the 6th of May, 2016, when he was killed. That was the end of it. Mm -hmm. Like I was literally freed from it. And I know it probably makes no sense to some people, but it's no coincidence that it happened that way. And when I made the discovery that, cause I only did this podcast not that long ago. When I made that discovery, I was standing in the kitchen and this just popped into my head. I was like, Whoa, I literally started screaming in the house. And when was like, what is wrong? And I told her and she was like, that is just too weird. And I'm, I was always a firm believer in karma. Cause I always knew karma would, would, you know, I knew karma would have my back, but I knew at that very minute that everything happened for a reason. You know what I mean? Like there was so many times where I nearly died. And I didn't, you know what I mean? So the power of writing and the power of being able to use your voice goes so much deeper than people realize. Mm-hmm. And being able to understand what my resilience was and what resilience means for me all made sense at that very moment when I made that full circle, you know, and mm-hmm. my life has completely changed. And you know, your life has completely changed. You're making these discoveries now. But 
you know, you said, you know, I've, I could have died so many times. All these things could have happened so many mm-hmm. times. And it's to point you to the fact that you have a purpose. We all have a purpose. We don't have to oh, stress yeah. ourselves out trying to articulate a very specific purpose. Because I know some people stress out about that. Some people stress yeah. out about not having a purpose. But I think we all have a purpose and we just have to identify it. And so you have a purpose. You realize you have a purpose. And you healed through your story, wrote a book to help others. And in moving forward, if I were to ask you, what do you think is your purpose now in life? What would you say? I think my purpose now makes sense to me that I am supposed to empower other people with my story and change lives. That is my biggest goal for me. You know, I wrote my book and the sales are nice. Don't get me wrong. They're wonderful. But I didn't write my book for the sales because the only thing that matters to me is people reading my story. Because no matter how big or little it is to one other person, it could change somebody else's life. And and that is what my purpose is. My purpose is to advocate and be the voice for the voiceless and to teach people what their resilience is. Because we don't have to let certain things define us. Do you know what I mean? Like, if I had have let in all of my abusers win, that's what they wanted. But I'm still here telling my story. I'm the one that's still alive. I'm still standing here. Do you know what I mean? So that's what I know that that's what my purpose was. And I think now I'd like to think that's why I was put in this earth, you know? And I, I think that with my guiding, I, with my guardian angel being my father, I do definitely think that it's all just come full circle and it all makes sense now because I feel like that's what I'm supposed to do, you know? And I'm hoping that I can continue to do that and I can continue to reach the right people because it's hard to find your purpose but I was nearly 30 when I figured out what mine was, even though in the back of my mind, I kind of always knew what I wanted to do. You will just have that, that light will go on one day in your head and it'll all just make sense to you. Yeah. I love, I love that you share that experience because for a lot of us, I think figuring out what our purpose is and where it came from and what to do with it helps us in motivating us in life and in helping us with a lot of other things, but life, life can be complicated. And I think that that's very helpful. Um, You shared so many things, um, powerful things. And and I want to thank you for your, your bravery and sharing a lot of these stories in this podcast interview, but also in your book. Um, Do you have any final uh, words of advice or anything you want to share with our listeners that I didn't get a chance to ask you? I think my advice to anybody who is struggling or, you know, um, just going through something, anything, my, my advice to them would just be to keep going because everything is going to make sense one day. You know, um, I know sometimes you go through the absolute worst of things and the storms are just too much. And just when you think you can't go on anymore, you get this little glimmer of hope and it is there. You just have to connect with the right people. You need to find your safe space. You know, my advice to somebody would be just find your people because you will fit in somewhere. You know what I mean? Just don't give up because you are here for a reason. So many people underestimate that. And so many people just don't realize that they really are given this life for a reason. And we really don't realize how like amazing that opportunity is, you know, um, like you are resilient you need to stay resilient you know I, I I I have a saying and it's beautifully broken 
I've had I've had people get that tattooed on them because I said that, you know, um, and that's just true. Like we're not perfect, and you just need to keep going because you will find your purpose. You like you will, and that's just there's there's no other way about it. I like uh, I like the beautifully broken. Uh, there's no such thing as perfection. Let's get yeah. over that. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. We're beautiful, and we're beautiful because of who we are. And yeah. I love the advice about finding your people, find your tribe, find your safe space. Yeah, I think that's very powerful for any of us, any age, anywhere in the world. Yeah. Find it. Um, yeah. Don't do it alone. No, absolutely not. Because I think if you feel like you can take this world on alone, that's where you're going to go wrong. You need to just find your, you need to find your tribe, find your people, find your, you know, I call them ride or dies. And you just need to, you will find them. Just don't give up hope. Because I think when you're giving up hope, you don't realize what you're also giving up on top of that. Do you know what I mean? So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, very, very true. And, you know, uh, that was great advice as we come to an end for this episode. I just want to tell our listeners, uh, thank you for listening to the story. And I hope you're all inspired to look at the power of story and healing, whether you do that in writing, in art, in music, and any any yeah. way that, that you can. Stories can be told in so many ways. And for our listeners, all the links related to this episode, including the link to Bernie's book, that's all going to be in the description section of this podcast episode. So when you go to Coffee and Interview and you go to the description, you'll be able to click on the link and go directly to that resource or item that we were talking about or depending on your platform, you might have to copy and paste the link into your browser, but the information is there for you. And um, Brittany, this was an amazing interview. Thank you for holding on through all our Wi-Fi issues. Um, all right. <laughs> <laughs> a Wi-Fi issue is nothing. <laughs> uh, you know, I feel, you know, Wi-Fi issues when we're talking about such delicate information and experiences uh, yeah, can be complicated but you are a champ and i just want to thank you for your patience where our wi-fi oh, issues and to our listeners yeah and just just hang in there to our listeners listen to the full episode read the book and um continue using the power of show your heel and Brittany, continue with your purpose and and thank you for for sharing your story and for finding this purpose that well, will help you. others. I appreciate the opportunity and, uh, you know, I hope it makes a difference. So it's definitely worth it. I appreciate it a lot. Yep, it will. It will. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Coffee and Interview and I'll catch you all in the next episode. <laughs>